sometime early in the century, the year is 1910, merging into 1911, a young American student of philosophy, Thomas Stearns Eliot, wrote a poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Four years later, in 1915, he published that poem. Although a later poem of his called The Wasteland would become more famous, it seems to me that the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was perhaps the most important single poem in shaping the course of poetry in the 20th century, at least poetry written in English. In the next 45 or 50 minutes, we will look at this poem. It's really quite remarkable and Although on first reading it may seem difficult, in fact, I remember the first time I encountered it, I was a student in college, it was a warm day, my roommate had to read the poem for a course, we sat outside on the grass and wondered, what does this stuff mean? Although I remember the, my first encounter with the poem, and, and in, in a way that the poem made no sense and seemed totally beyond me, I think if we can make a few slight adjustments as we go through it, slight adjustments, not even in the way we think, but in what we expect from a poem, it turns out that the poem is not overly difficult. Not only is it not overly difficult, but it is, I think, a deep poem, a poem that's deep not because it's so wise, but because it speaks so deeply to many of us. What it speaks about, I'll leave till later. In fact, what I want to begin with is the mystery of this poem, because the poem is a kind of mystery poem. It presents a problem or perhaps a riddle that we have to decipher. There's a secret that we have to uncover. There is an answer that we have to go in search of. The poem, and I'll return to the title later, the poem begins, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Something interesting goes on in that first line. The speaker is speaking to us directly. Let us go then, you and I. The us is not enough. The speaker wants us to know that it is you and I who am speaking. Let's go out into the evening, he says. In fact, he is inviting us to take a walk with him. Let us go then. You and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Few similes in poetry have been as astounding as this one. When the evening is spread out like rosy-fingered dawn, well, it would be the morning. That's one of Homer's great 
phrases, rosy-fingered dawn, when the evening is spread out in spectacular colors before us, when the evening is quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration, to quote Wordsworth. We can understand things like that. But this simile, this comparison says, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Already, if we're careful, we say, what's going on here? This evening is like a patient who is about to go under, who has been afflicted with something that stops normal feeling and normal consciousness. Well, it's not the person who's afflicted with that, but the, the whole sky seems that way. And we wonder, I think, if it isn't a kind of projection, if this isn't telling us as much about the speaker as about the sky itself. Well, let's continue and see where this strange speaker who's invited us to go for a walk takes us. Let me read the next four or five lines. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. From this, from the sequence of actions, we learn two things. We are going out through the city. We're going to follow the streets. The streets are going to lead us to a question. And the question has something to do with a visit that us, you and I, are going to make. Let's go back and look at those lines. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets so you're not going to meet many people out. The muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. Now, the very large question this poem poses for us, it's a detective poem, as I said before, is what is the overwhelming question that is coming up in the next few lines? What, what question is it? And I wonder if you can see already, by paying attention, something of the dimensions of that question. I'll repeat. Through hurt certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. What happens in hotels, cheap hotels, where people spend one night? Well, maybe there are passers-by. But we use the term one night to refer to something more than just staying in a hotel. We talk about, in colloquial English, one-night stands. Well, maybe that's being a little too sexual, those restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. Let's go to the next line. And sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Well, at the turn of the century, Bars and restaurants often had sawdust on the floor, so the things that fell down would, would be, the liquids would be absorbed and things could be swept out. And there are oyster shells. When I ask 
in class. What oysters remind people of, it doesn't take long till someone giggles and says, oh, oysters are aphrodisiacs. So now within the space of two lines, we've had restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Our thinking processes on some level are engaged. And so we continue streets that follow like a tedious argument. Oh, I'm so tired of this line of thinking, right? That's what a tedious argument is, of insidious intent. It's going somewhere. It's got an intent, but it's insidious. It's going to undermine me. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? The speaker says that because the question is too insidious and because the speaker is not ready yet to reveal what the question is. And so he concludes this first stanza by saying, let us go and make our visit. And then the poem skips a line. There's a blank line and there's a couplet, two lines that are among the most famous in modern poetry. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. One of the things which makes Eliot such a modern poet is his willingness to use images. In this case, it's a, a kind of picture and sound evocation of something. I, I like to think of it as a cocktail party, people making conversation about famous artists like Michelangelo. Uh, it could be in the England of that time, a tea party, and later on a tea party will come up. And the line is not explained for us. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. I've already done some explaining. Sounds like a tea party or a cocktail party where people are a little bit snotty and precious. Another aspect of the line that in thinking about it is, is why are they talking about Michelangelo instead of Leonardo or Giotto or something else that rhymes with O? We think of Michelangelo and the incredible physicality of the men and women that he painted. Perhaps that has something to do with this line, but we don't know. We keep on going. And it turns out that that tedious argument of insidious intent is now, in a way, personified or mirrored in the weather, because the whole next stanza, which I will quickly read to you and pass by is about the fog, a London fog that is a pea super. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. Stanza three. 
I'll read stanza three, and I think you will have no difficulty hearing how often the poet T.S. Eliot repeats the word time. Even if we don't know quite what he's talking about, we know that the issue here is time. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. Let's work backwards in this stanza. He says, time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions. I think you will see that this whole stanza is about that. There's always enough time to be indecisive, to change our minds. And time yet, the poem goes, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. So in the time in which we set out on this walk, Proofrock, the speaker, is telling us there's lots of time to decide and undecide, to see and to revise before we even get to a tea party. He says in this stanza, there are wonderful lines in this poem, he says, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Extraordinary psychological insight. Each of us, every day, perhaps as we do different things many times during the day, each of us prepares a face to meet the faces that you meet. And so the stanza ends saying, as I've read, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. For the second time, we have that couplet. It's become a refrain. It won't come again, but it emphasizes that the tea to which we're going is probably made up of people talking and that he's focused on the women more than the men. And then the poem continues because time still obsesses our speaker. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? We have to ask ourselves, what is this about? What does he dare to do? What What is he afraid of doing when he says, do I dare? And do I dare? And he is afraid because the line continues and indeed there will be time to wonder do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back 
and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. So what he's told us here is that he's heading towards a T. People will be chattering. There's time to wonder if he has the courage to go to this T, to turn back and descend the stair. And, and we know that he's worried about how he looks and how he presents himself, because he says, with a, a bald spot in the middle of my hair, he's aware of his appearance and more. The next line tells us he's aware that people will respond to his appearance and maybe not in the best way. Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin. They will say but how his arms and legs are thin. So there is an attempt to go up the stairs, a doubt about going up the stairs, a worry about his baldness, a sense they will say, oh, he is aging now, his hair is growing thin. And then he says, no, but I can assert myself. I wear good clothes. A morning coat is a kind of formal wear, a long coat with tails what we call tails, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. I'll give part of the poem away. The most assertive he will be in the whole poem is having a firm collar and asserting his necktie with a tie pin. So he's trying to dress, not for success exactly, but to dress so that he can counteract his boldness, or what he also knows in the next line, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. So he doesn't have a very good sense of his own body and his strength and his masculinity. And then he says, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. I always think this is the most amazing line. Do I dare disturb the universe? Here's a man who is going to a tea party and some people are talking and he's a little worried about uh, balding and being a little thin and he thinks if he should go into that party and deal with a question, an overwhelming question, he might disturb the universe as if God cares, as if Saturn or the crab nebula in Orion care whether he goes into this party or not. And yet, so self-conscious is he that he thinks the whole universe might quiver and be disturbed if he were to go to this party. And then a line I say to myself often, because I think this is the way we so often are, especially in the modern world, when assailed by doubts and insecurities, we say, not in words as good as this, but we say it to ourselves, in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. So in a minute we can decide, 
and we can revise what we've decided, and then we can reverse it all. And the minute isn't even gone. We can dither around. And then he says, for I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And the all who he knows are the women coming and going, talking of Michelangelo in that room, the people who will say how his hair is growing thin, how his arms and legs are thin. He's known them all. He's world-weary. He understands everything. This is an ironic poem. I don't think he understands all that much, but he's telling us he understands it all. Have known the evenings, morning, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. People who read this poem in 1915 were stunned by the language, the modernity of saying, not speaking of soul or speaking of daffodils and waterfalls like Wordsworth, but speaking of, of a life measured out with coffee spoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. Again, he doesn't tell us what he means, but we can guess. Every day I make the coffee. There's a terrible, dull regularity in my life. Well, the metaphor is rich. Or the simile, maybe it means something analogous, but different. I've portioned out my life, not in huge bunches, and I haven't lived with armfuls and, and huge amounts of baggage. I have measured out my life by coffee spoons, one tablespoon at a time. And he ends the stanza, as I said, so how should I presume? How should I dare to intrude myself on these people? And he says the same thing to end the next stanza. And I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that say how his hair has grown thin, the eyes that see how his arms and legs are thin. I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase, and when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways, and how should I presume? He's worried in the stanza that he will be, that he'll enter this room and they will say something about him. Oh, J. Alfred Prufrock is fill-in-the-blank. And when they say it, it will be like they have got him stuck with a pin, like an insect wriggling attached to the wall to a, a specimen. He'll be just another specimen caught in their comment, struggling to escape from that pin which he can't escape from. How should I begin, he says, to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? All he has left of his life are, the, again, a modern metaphor, like the, 
the butt ends of things like cigarette butts, like the leftover pieces. And another stanza, which has the refrain, and how should I presume? And I have known, this one begins, and I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and should I then presume, and how should I begin? Yes, he's known the eyes that formulate him, but here he's known the arms already, known them all, braceleted arms, white and bare, and then a parenthesis, but in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. They're not perfect. These women are not like statues. They have hair on their arms. And maybe, dare I myself say, hair on other parts of their bodies. They might be sensual, sexual creatures. He does say, is it perfume? Is it smell? Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl? And should I then presume, he asks, presume what? And how should I begin? Begin what, I would ask. Now I think I think at this point we know that he's afraid of entering this room and afraid of encountering these women who will judge him harshly. And there's some kind of question that he isn't sure he dares to address. He doesn't know how to presume. He doesn't know how to begin. What is that question? Might it be, well, let's look at the next line. He's just said, and how should I begin? This is what he says. Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. I think we can read this line. Should I begin by saying, I've gone out at night and there are lonely men who smoke pipes and look out their windows. Why would he tell a woman this at a cocktail party except to suggest that he himself might be lonely, that he himself might lean out of windows looking for something? And then he responds to himself, oh, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. What a strange image is that, that is. Claws scuttling deep under the water with no noise. What does it mean? Well, it means far away from the rooms where the women come and go. Talking of Michelangelo, these are silent seas. It means he should have been far away from a human world, deep under the water. He should have been something with a carapace like clams, some hard shell so that nothing affects him. 
He should have been claws, which can grab, which is perhaps what he wants to do in some way. He should have been claws, which can grab, instead of saying, do I dare and do I dare, in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. Perhaps he should have been pure animality. Notice this crab doesn't even have a rudimentary brain. I should have been just body. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. So this strange image suggests silence and being away from noise. It suggests being far away from a human world. It suggests desire and reaching out. It suggests a kind of brute animality. It suggests not having a brain. And then the poem resumes. And the afternoon, the evening, sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor, here beside you and me. And he asks himself, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? I think this is a key point in the poem. Will I have the strength? After going to the party and eating the appetizers and canapes, or in this case, sipping the tea and eating some little pettifours and cakes and having some sherbet, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? And he's going to respond to this sense of, do I have the strength, by saying, I was afraid. Listen to the next lines. But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. And here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. He's no prophet. He can't answer his question. His greatness has flickered away. God, death, have laughed at him, held his coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And so he decides not to go to the tea party and not to confront the question and although the question is not clear yet, it will be soon. Because there are two stanzas that address this question. Again, by a kind of indirection, by walking around it. But I think by now, you remember back to the beginning, the one-night cheap hotels and the oyster shells. And we remember the, the questions of do I dare and how should I presume and how should I begin and I should lonely men in shirt sleeves and wanting to be a pair of ragged claws. Listen to what comes here. If I had forced the moment to its crisis, is the context for this stanza. And would it have been worth it? After all, after the cups, 
the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. The stanza says, would it have been worthwhile after tea and after biting off the matter with a smile, as he says, by smiling and saying, okay, I'm going to face this question, to have taken everything, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to like bowling. And it's an allusion to a famous poem of Andrew Marvell's in which he says, now let us love us while we can, to roll it towards some overwhelming question. It's the third time in this poem we've had the question come up to say, I am Lazarus come from the dead, right? I'm not thin and bald and out of it. I've come back from the dead. I'm alive. I have human needs and desires. What if I should say, I am Lazarus come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. What if? A woman, because it's a female pronoun. What if the woman he wants to say this to should say, settling a pillow by her head, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. You've guessed by now, haven't you, the question he wants to ask and is afraid to ask is some variation on Will you be my lover? Will you go out with me and come home with me and let me make love to you? Are you willing to be with me as a woman can be with a man? And would it have been worth it after all? says the next stanza. And would it have been worth it? After all, would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor and this and so much more? You know what he's saying? He says, it's hard. I can't say it. It is impossible to say just what I mean but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen. Those lines tell us, I can't say what I mean, but, but you know it's like my nerves are projected up there on a slide projector. It is impossible to say just what I mean, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. And so Prufrock, who's afraid, doesn't ask his question, lest the person he asks say, oh my God, how could you say that? How dare you? That's not on my mind. You 
dirty man, you! That, that isn't, in fact, what people who know one another say. It's what we fear will be said when we are uncertain of ourselves, when we doubt our attractiveness. And you remember his hair is grown thin, he's got a bald spot, his arms and legs are thin, he thinks people talk about him and formulate him in a phrase, and he seems like a bug to them and himself. And so he hasn't the courage to ask his question. In fact, the poem continues with an image of courage. Prince Hamlet, who, interestingly, couldn't make up his mind, but at least was a lot more courageous than Prufrock. No! I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. I'm not Prince Hamlet, he says in that stanza. I'm just somebody who hangs around. I fill out the scene on the stage. Maybe I can offer advice like old Polonius. You know, give a little cautious, careful, meticulous advice. But a little dense, you know, a little obtuse, he says. Then he realizes that he is like Polonius. Almost, indeed, at times indeed, almost ridiculous almost at times the fool. So he's gone from feeling bad about how he looks to feeling bad about how he thinks. He's a fool. And then the most famous lines in the poem, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. Having decided not to venture to the party, not to approach the woman, not to ask his question, and whether it's about sex or marriage or love in not such a bodily sense, I cannot say, but he is afraid to approach the woman. So it's no surprise that he says, I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Well, I can at least dress up in the new style with cuffs on my pants. Goes back to what we had before when he says uh, his way of counteracting his boldness and thinness is to wear a modest necktie to have his a firm collar. You remember that line in which he says, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin, he's still talking fashion. 
as compensation. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers robe. He's still thinking about how to deal with it. When he says, shall I part my hair behind? That's because his hair is growing thin and he has a bald spot. And if he parts from the back and combs his hair forward, maybe it will cover his bald spot. Do I dare, he asks, to eat a peach? Earlier, he was outrageous in one sense, thinking that if he asked someone to sleep with him, it would disturb the universe. Do I dare disturb the universe? This is the other side equally observed. He doesn't even know whether to eat a peach. Why not? Because a peach is ripe and luscious, and to bite into it would be to seize something sensual, and he can't even do that. Or because to eat a peach would, as happens when we bite into a peach, juice runs down our cheeks and we're not neat and maybe even falls on these trousers which are cuffed and he's a little messy clearly he's worried about even the smallest messiness in life and so he turns to an imaginary world instead of walking towards the party he somehow walks to the shore and sees the sea, whether he's really at the shore, whether he's only dreaming of the waves, we do not know. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. So he envisions the waves, and he thinks that as the waves begin to break and there's white on top of the curved breaker, he thinks this is mermaids combing the white hair of the waves. And then he has a moment of recognition. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls, not humans, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. So the poem ends with the human voice, the women who come and go and speak of Michelangelo, the women who might conceivably, at least in his fears, say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. And he drowns, unable to swim in that social element to deal with those forces, those, in the terms of the image we've just seen, those juicy peaches that might drip and stain his white flannel trousers. Prufrock retreats from the world. Now I will read the whole poem because I think it is such a wonderful dramatic monologue, which is a term that Browning exploited in his poems at the end of the 19th century, a poem in which a character reveals himself or sometimes herself 
through his language and his thought processes. And that's what's happening here is that that um, Prufrock is revealing himself and his concerns through this talk that he has with us, those of us who read him. It's a dramatic lyric, as the critic Robert Langbaum pointed out. It's a, a poem that moves not just to the exploitation and exposition of character, but moves to the investigation of feelings. And in this case, the feeling in the poem, which is revealed to us, I should say, only because, only because we could never tell anybody. The, there's an epigraph to the poem from Dante. It's in Italian, and I won't read it, although I could, but I won't. I'm not good on medieval Latin. The translated runs, if I thought my reply were to one who could ever return to the world, this flame would shake no more. But since, if what I hear is true, none ever did return alive from this depth, I answer you without fear of infamy. That's the speaking flame of Guido de Montefeltro, who Dante encounters in hell, and who tells him things because he says, Dante, I know you'll never go back to the world. Nobody ever returned to the world from hell. So I can tell you, and nobody will know. So Prufrock in this poem is telling us things that he would tell no one else, knowing that his secret can never be revealed. Of course, his secret is revealed. It's in a poem. And I would suggest that in some ways, this is Eliot's secret, told us through the mouths of someone else, or the mouth of someone else, through, through Prufrock. What Eliot is telling us is something about loneliness, something about fear, but most importantly, and here's where I think he speaks to each and every modern human being, he's isolating one of the truly fundamental problems of modern life, which is that for many reasons, the poem doesn't go into those reasons, we are afraid of intimacy. We're afraid of saying to others what we think and feel at our deepest levels. We're afraid to open ourselves up to others. Primarily, the poem suggests, because we are so afraid of rejection, fearing scorn, being laughed at, fearing being typecast, remember the insect wriggling on a, on a pin, feeling especially that if we reveal what we want, it will be dismissed and we will be, that people will be horrified at what is within us, at the depth of our need and our desire. That is not what I meant. That is not it at all. Fearing all these things, the poem doesn't tell us. It's only one person. It's a Prufrock, a, a silly man with the name J. Alfred Prufrock. But it suggests that a malady of the modern day, maybe not everyone, but Eliot's saying, check it out. See if you too feel this way. 
that a malady of the modern day is that we are afraid to ask for the things that we most deeply need, that we're afraid to open ourselves up to other people, and we are far too willing to live within our own fears and constraints, that we do not say the things that would get us the love and fulfillment we most deeply desire. There are things I don't like about T.S. Eliot. I don't like some of his attitudes towards life and towards literature. I don't like some of his political actions. He was enormously conservative, and I, I believe he was uh, a misogynist who disliked women. He was an anti-Semite. He was a racist. I don't like some of what he did to language. And I think he, he made poetry a little too difficult and formal and turned people, ordinary people like myself and those who are listening, away from poetry, which seemed to belong only to experts. So there's much not to like about Eliot. But one thing to like about Eliot is this extraordinary awareness I think it came from deep within him and his own weaknesses and needs. This, this immense awareness of how in our time people are often lonely and unfulfilled and immensely frightened of addressing that in any way that might end the loneliness and create fulfillment. We do not have a great enough capacity, the poem seems to say to me, for intimacy and closeness in our modern day. We are all of us more than we would like to admit brothers or at least cousins to J. Alfred Prufrock, whose love song is so poignant and so empty and so unfulfilling. Here then is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and, seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed, 
There will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you, and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room, so how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. When I am formulated sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight, down with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume, and how should I begin? Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas, and the afternoon, the evening, sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor, here beside you and me, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis. But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it 
after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one, settling a pillow by her head, should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. And would it have been worthwhile after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor and this and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile? If one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times a fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? Uh, I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown.